It's lovely to be sharing with you today. We're starting a four-week series uh, on issues that we commonly think about, think about uh, issues that we face uh, in our day-to-day lives. And today, it's about being in control. I'm in control, question mark. Um, I like mowing the lawn. Why do I like mowing the lawn, you might say. There are it's a strange thing to enjoy. Uh, it's true that I don't like doing many jobs around the house, but I do like mowing the lawn because I get a sense of satisfaction out of doing it. It brings a sense of order to my yard after only about half an hour of walking up and down the lawn with my mower, I can tame the relative chaos into a pretty neat, nice-looking lawn. Why I like mowing the lawn is that it gives me a sense of control. There's something simple I can do to tame and control one area of my life. And maybe it's because there are plenty of things in my life that I can't control that I find refuge in mowing the lawn. I can't control my adult kids anymore. could probably never control them, but especially now, I can't control the decisions that they make. And after years and years of trying... I've come to the realisation that I can't control my wife. (laughs) I don't know if anyone, you married people, have come to that conclusion as well. And then I can't control the fact that I'm getting older. And now that about by about 9pm I turn into a vegetable. It's a fact of life. It's something I can't control. And so I look to the things that I can control and I kind of grasp onto those things. And I suspect in doing that, that I'm not alone. Because actually we can't live with a feeling in life that everything is out of control. We need to feel a level of predictability and stability that comes from believing that we have at least some sense of control and, um, and say over the things that are going to happen today and then tomorrow and, and some sense of control over what our future will be like. But how much of life can we really control? What level of control is actually appropriate and healthy to look for? Well, these are some of the questions that we're going to look at this morning. Becky just read to us a passage from the Bible that we'll be looking at as well. And we're going to see that being in control of our lives is a God-given desire and it's a good thing and a necessary thing to have a sense of predictability and trust that our circumstances will be okay that our future is in hand. But we may discover this morning that the source of that control is actually quite different to the message that we often hear in the world. Let's pray 
as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word and that it speaks into this issue of who has control, who should have control over our lives. We pray that as we hear from you, that we may listen and that it may challenge us, encourage us, and where necessary, that it may change us. Amen. I've got three points this morning. The first point is a loss of control. The loss of control. I just said a moment ago that having control is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. Control gives us stability, predictability, safety. In the book of Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible that Becky read out to us, the first man and the first woman lived in a state of control. Let's read it again. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. They had stability, predictability, safety. They lived in a garden that was beautiful, abundant, full of good things. They had purpose, the job of working this garden and looking after it. They had closeness of relationship with each other and with God who lived there in the garden with them. And notice they also had freedom, not absolute freedom, but freedom within limits. They could eat from any tree of the garden except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This limit to their freedom was small. It wasn't burdensome. There was just one tree out of the whole garden that they couldn't eat from. The first man and the first woman had what we might call agency. That is, the ability to make choices. They had the ability to influence their environment as they worked the garden. They were given the ability to be creative in the way that they created order and maintained order. They had all the benefits of control. But what they recognised and accepted was that it was God who was in control, not ultimately themselves. And everything about their world was good. The world was as it should be. Until the next chapter, chapter 3, that again Becky read out for it. Let's revisit that as well. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit 
from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The idea hadn't occurred to them to be dissatisfied with the freedom that they had, with the agency that they had, with the security and the safety and the order and predictability that they had. Hadn't occurred to them to be dissatisfied with that until the serpent planted the idea in their heads to be dissatisfied with God being in control. And then suddenly it became urgent that they not only have freedom within proper limits, but they had to be in control. Suddenly the idea of any limits became intolerable. The idea of anyone telling them what to do, even God. And so what they craved was what we might call autonomy. They insisted that they must become like God. That they had knowledge and power that only God had. What they grasped after was control. But the tragedy in this story is that in grasping after control for themselves, the man and the woman actually lost control. Because they lost trust in the only source of control that there was. They dissociated themselves and ripped themselves away from relationship with the one source of control that there really was. They lost the intimacy they had with God and even with each other. They lost security, they lost order, they lost predictability in their lives and their days became filled with chaos and uncertainty. I just want to focus quickly on three massive costs that Adam and Eve had to pay. And then I want to flesh out in our next section how that's a price tag that we have to pay as well. Three massive costs. Anxiety, isolation and frustration. So firstly, anxiety. When the man and the, and the woman trusted in God being in control, they recognised that everything he gave them was good. They lived in harmony with each other. And God living with them in the garden was a source of security and joy. But things changed as soon as they ate the fruit. Just after the passage that we read there in Genesis 3, God goes looking for them in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? 
instead of gladly running to meet with God, this is what happens. Genesis 3 verse 9, the man says, or the, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid. Things have changed between the man and God. Suddenly, in grasping after control, in insisting on his own autonomy, God is now a rival who he has to run away from. He's a threat to his independence. He's afraid of God. There's anxiety in that relationship instead of joy and security. Secondly, there's isolation. We've just seen how the man runs away from God. He doesn't want closeness and intimacy with his creator. He's his own man now. He wants autonomy. He wants distance. He chooses isolation. And so God gives what the man asks for. He gets isolation. Along with a woman, he is banished from the garden. And with that, from an intimate relationship with God. Confidence and security based on that relationship is replaced by uncertainty, insecurity, isolation, loneliness. Instead of feeling loved and protected, human beings are now alone. They have become orphans in the universe. But control also leads to isolation between the man and the woman. After the man hid from God, we just saw that he was afraid because he was naked. God asks, who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit I told you not to eat from? And here comes the first recorded example of passing the buck in human history. Playing the blame game. Verse 12, the man said, The woman, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. It's her fault. And actually it's your fault too. You put her here with me. And then God asks the woman what she's done. The serpent deceived me. She said, he made me do it. And so the buck keeps getting passed. As they grasp after control, they try to manipulate their circumstances and make themselves look innocent. As they try to control the narrative, they blame each other. They push themselves away. They isolate themselves with a wall of suspicion. And then finally, as the man and the woman now desperately to take, try desperately to take back control of their lives, the pattern of the frustration of control, the frustration of control sets in. We heard earlier that when they ate the fruit, their eyes were opened and they realised they were naked. For the first time in their lives, they felt a sense of embarrassment and shame. And so they try to fix things. 
Verse 7, then the eyes of them, both of them were open and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. A pathetic attempt to try to cover their shame. But of course it doesn't work. When they ran away from God, there was shame as well as fear. This was the very first act of a very long and well-trodden path of human beings trying to control things, but ending up frustrated because control is something that we just can't do. Now, you've probably guessed where, where I'm going with all this. You've probably tweaked at this story that happened way back um, at the beginning of the Bible. It isn't just a tragic, isolated event. Because this story is also our story. You see, the Bible makes it clear that Adam and Eve, uh, what they did in the garden has affected every human being that has lived since, including you and I. We have inherited their nature. We have inherited their rebellion. We have inherited their grasping after control and autonomy. Their story is also our story. And we also try to take on what only God can do. And our efforts also end up in failure and frustration. But still, we keep trying to control because control is something we need. It's an inbuilt need that God has given us. We need that sense of security, predictability, safety that comes from knowing that someone is in control. But we keep making the fatal error of thinking that it's us who's in control. And that leads to our second point. There is a cost of control. There is a cost of control when we take that on for ourselves. And again, we can see it in the same three areas that we saw in Genesis 3, in anxiety, isolation and frustration. We're just going to focus on the first two. Firstly, anxiety. In the garden, before the man and the woman ate the fruit, there was relational security. God being there with them. Protection sense of identity and purpose from that relationship, knowing their place in that world. They knew that he was their creator. He defined who they were. He defined what they were there for. But then they lost all that, and so have we. In our world now, we don't look to God to define us and give us our sense of purpose. Now that's all up to us to find our own way, to beat our own path. We think that's freedom. But friends, actually, that's a terrible burden. Because now my sense of identity and even sense of worth isn't something that's fixed by my relationship with God, it's something I've got to create myself. And my self-image and my identity is hugely dependent on what other people think of me. Now you might think, well, Marshall, 
this might apply to me, to you, this might apply to other people, but, but I'm not like that. I'm above all that. But just think for a moment whether or not you ask yourself questions about what people think of you. Questions like, if I share honestly about my weaknesses, if I reveal that about myself, what will people think? If I go to marriage counselling, what will people think? If I drop out of uni, what will people think? The reality is that we all care very much about what people think. And that's a terrible burden to carry because in effect in doing that, we're trying to control others. We're trying to influence and manipulate what they think about us. And that's an impossible thing to do. It ends up with us often anxious and uncertain and insecure because we are trying to control something that's beyond our control. Then the second cost to looking to be in control is isolation. I think this is best illustrated by a story. Um, I've always had dreams of being a good runner. Trouble is, I was never much good. I trained and worked hard, but the reality is I was never much better than a reasonable middle-of-the-pack runner. One of the also-rans. But when my son Bill, I'm sorry Bill, I'm going to embarrass Bill here. When my middle son Bill got to about year five or six, he showed real promise as a runner. Not, not Olympic level, but certainly much better than I was. Now, one of the dumber things I did in my parenting career was decide to take on the role of coaching Bill. It was dumb because I stupidly tried to live out my dreams of being a good runner vicariously through my son. And so I pushed him and pressured him. I tried to make him make sure he reached his potential by generally being an obnoxious tiger dad. And of course, I failed miserably. Because I tried to control Bill instead of giving him the freedom to run or not run or to, to train at his own pace. Now, thankfully now, I have a good relationship with Bill. But at the time, all my efforts to control him put a lot of tension in our relationship. Quite reasonably, he resented me pushing him and forcing him to do what I wanted him to do. And that's a very obvious example of being controlling, but it's something we often do, often in more subtle ways in our relationships, with our spouses, with our family, with our loved ones, with our friends, with our work colleagues. Those things that annoy us about them, we try to change them, manipulate them, cajole them. But it doesn't work. That might work in the short term in shallow ways, but ultimately it doesn't work. 
We try to bend people in a way that they're not meant to be bent. Instead of changing them, we end up alienating them, pushing them away, creating resentment, mistrust. And we become isolated as we try to have control over those we love. Worse still, like the man and the woman in the garden, we've isolated ourselves from God. We too insist on our autonomy and we push him away. And so like the first man and the woman who are banished from God's presence, they were banished from the garden, we too live outside the garden. We too feel like we're on our own. And we have a constant anxiety about feeling that we are orphans in the universe. Now a lot of this might, um, that I'm saying about control, you, you, you may feel, well, Marshall, I already know this and, I, and I, you might well agree with what I'm saying, that control doesn't work. And you might agree with the, the problems that looking for control leads to, the cost of control. So you may be thinking, oh, I know all that, Marshall, so what? I know we're not in control. We can't really control our lives or other people. But what I want to say as we lead into our, our last point is that control is something we absolutely need. Control is something we need. We can't live without it. And that's why we keep trying to grasp after it, even as we see the futility of, of doing it. The things that control brings, certainty, security, a sense of safety, and believing that we have a fixed place and we belong in the universe. They are things we cannot live without. They are hardwired into us by our creator. That's the way God made us. That's the way Adam and Eve lived in the garden before they ate the fruit. And that's the way that we were designed to live. Knowing that God, our Father... Our creator is in control of every aspect of our life. God loves us and wants us to live the way that we were created. And that's why he sent his son Jesus into the world. Our third point is that Jesus came to redeem control. He came to restore us to live properly with God, with God in control and human beings living in a trusting relationship with him, restored from isolation, no longer living in constant anxiety, living in rest rather than striving for control. Jesus is described in the Bible as the second Adam. Because he represented a new beginning. He represented a winding back to the clock and, and a, 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 um, a new beginning. He did what Adam failed to do. And he did what we have failed to do 
he willingly trusted that God is in control. He refused to grasp after control himself. Even though he could have manipulated circumstances better than any other human being. Because he is God. He is the son of God. But he refused to do that. So that he could redeem control. By that I mean that Jesus has restored control back to where it belongs. Of course, God has always been in control. That, that fact hasn't changed. But what Jesus has done was restored us to be under that control, restored our relationship with God so that we now recognise his control. He brought us back into relationship with our Creator. So that instead of kicking and screaming against God's control, we can now embrace it and gladly trust in it. He did that by paying the cost of our autonomy on the cross. The Bible calls that sin. It's rebellion against God's rule. And what Jesus came to do when he died was to pay the cost of that. And what's beautiful and powerful about this story is that we can see a reversal of the mess of Genesis 3. Jesus' journey to the cross is, in a sense, a reenactment of the garden. Instead of listening to the lies of the serpent and grasping after autonomy, Jesus refuses to listen to the lies of Satan. And instead he prays to God his Father in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays, not my will, but yours be done. The man and the woman in the garden were exposed for their nakedness. They ran from God in shame, isolated and alone. Jesus was also shamed and humiliated as he hung naked on the cross, isolated and alone. But then three days later, God showed that Jesus' journey to the cross undid the curse of the garden. A woman ran to his tomb to put spices on his dead body. Instead, she found the tomb empty. Then Jesus, alive and restored, met her and spoke to her in that garden, another garden. The woman heard the truth. She saw the truth that Jesus had conquered death. And so she ran and told that truth to Jesus' disciples. She reversed the actions of the first woman who heard lies and then told those lies to her husband. In dying and then rising from the dead, 
Jesus has reversed the curse of us being in control. And he has restored us and opened the way for us to find rest in him. As Bill talked about at the beginning of the service in Matthew 11. As we trust in him. As God redeems control. As we let God be in control again. As we find safety and security and protection in living under the shadow of his wings. Living in rest and trust rather than anxiety. And then we will know the comfort of Jesus' words to his disciples. In John chapter 14 verse 18 he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. No longer are we orphans in the universe. And so, friends, Jesus leaves us with a choice. We can either keep our fists closed towards God and insist on maintaining our autonomy and control, but the cost of that is high. Ultimately, it means isolation. Ultimately, it means being an enemy with God. Or we can open those hands of ours. We can relinquish control, knowing that we were never actually were in control in the first place. Putting our trust in Jesus, finding the door opened to restoration with our Creator, resting under His control. I'll get the band up now, and as I do that, I want to spend, want you to spend just a minute while they're getting ready to think about the question of who is in control of your life. Who do you want to be in control? If you've never handed control over to God, today is a great day to, to do that. Or at least to start the next step in thinking about that. If you've never handed control today over to God, I encourage you to start thinking about that today. After the song, we're going to give you a chance to just respond respond on the response cards that we've got and everyone's going to do that if you've never accepted Jesus and a control over to him I encourage you to let us know that because we'd love to help you on that journey in taking that concrete step of letting go and handing control over to God